Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 72. This time, we will be looking at the 13th storyline from the Superman radio serial. First, though, something I don't get to do too much on the show, and that is share some comic book-related news. DC released its most recent round of solicitations last week, and among those, it was announced that coming your way in September will be Superman Chronicles Volume 10. The book has been solicited as containing Superman issues 18 and 19, Action Comics 53 through 55, and World's Finest Comics number 7, which are all books published originally in July through October 1942. Those stories see Superman taking on Nazis, as one might expect with World War II, as well as villains such as Luthor, Funny Face, Night Owl, and more. And it will contain the classic Superman Matinee Idol, which is a really fun story that sends up the Fleischer Superman cartoons. The book is due out September 5th, 2012, so don't forget to pre-order it with your books or, or pick it up when it comes out. The Chronicles seem to have been losing steam a little bit as far as rate of publication, so the more people pre-ordering or, or buying them when they come out, you know, it'll encourage DC to put out more, and, and the better chances are that we'll actually get more volumes. They've still got a long way to go before they catch up with the archive editions, and even farther before all of Jerry Siegel's stories are reprinted, so get out there and pick it up, folks. June of 1962, a superhero unlike any other made his first appearance in the pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15, the final issue of that series. Six months later, this character would receive his own title, and from there he would grow in popularity and be adapted into several animated series, a handful of live-action series, both in the U.S. and abroad, have countless action figures made in his likeness, dominate the cinema screen, and much, much more. It is fair to say that the amazing Spider-Man is a pop culture icon and a fictional character that people all over the world identify with and love. This year, Spider-Man is turning 50, and Views from the Long Box, an internet radio series hosted by me, Michael Bailey, is going to celebrate the wall crawler in a series of episodes focusing on various aspects of the character's existence. Together with such podcasting luminaries as Brad Douglas, Andrew Leyland, John Wilson, and Scott Gardner, I'm going to give Spidey the biggest birthday card a comic fan could. He may not be my favorite character, but I like him a great deal, and he deserves the spotlight in this, his 50th year. Views from the Long Box can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. New episodes hit every Friday. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey Tooth production in association with the DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. The 13th storyline from the Superman radio show was episodes 70 through 75 and ran July 22nd to August 2nd, 1940. Action Comics number 28, which we looked at last episode, was likely released just a day after this storyline began. The Sunday newspaper strip wrapped up The Chosen the Sunday prior, so they started a, a brand new arc as this story hit the midway point, and the dailies were continuing with the same storyline that we'll be looking at in an upcoming episode. Another notable thing that happened during this arc, per Flights of Fantasy, is that director Frank Chase left the show returning to a job in sales, and Jack Johnstone was brought in as the new director. Johnstone was a veteran radio director and writer, having previously done both for Buck Rogers in the 25th century, as well as other lesser-known shows on various networks. As far as I know, Bob Maxwell, Duke Duchovny, and George Ludlam are all still writing at this point. Johnstone will serve as director and presumably part of the writing team until the show switches to five days a week, in about a year, 
as originally broadcast. And there will be other changes in crew as well, so it should be interesting to see what changes come during that time. In the meantime, though, we've got six episodes ahead of us. Six episodes that have been called Lighthouse Point Smugglers. As our story opens today, Kent is passing through the city room on his way to the office of his chief, Editor Perry White of the Daily Planet, who has sent for him to discuss vacation. As Kent pauses at the editor's open door, Mr. White is reading a letter convulsed with laughter. Listen. Perry invites Clark in and says he received a letter from Jimmy Olsen. Apparently between working at the Daily Planet, helping his mom at the candy store, and going to school at night, Jimmy had gotten overworked and sick, so White sent him off on sick leave. Jimmy had gone to visit his aunt, Louisa Horn, who lives in a place called Lighthouse Point in New England. Jimmy had written several times telling of strange happenings, including ghostly noises, footsteps when no one is there, and lights in the abandoned lighthouse. Each letter tells of wilder and wilder stories, and Jimmy wants Perry to send Clark to investigate. Both men shrug it off as a joke, but as Clark is about to head back to his desk, Perry gets a call from Jimmy, who again says he wants Clark to come. Jimmy says there's a big story involving smugglers, and he wants the paper to get the story. But before he can say any more, the call is mysteriously cut off. Perry still thinks Jimmy is joking, but Clark is suspicious now and decides to use some of his vacation time to check things out. Switching to Superman, he speeds towards Lighthouse Point and finally meets up with Jimmy as Clark. Using a cat boat, Jimmy navigates the rough waters to take Clark the rest of the way, using what he thinks is the lighthouse from Crumbo Island to navigate. He explains that his aunt lives on Lighthouse Point, but that the lighthouse, built by her grandfather Joshua Horn, hasn't worked for years. He also says the reason he hung up so quickly on Perry is because a gang of men entered the store where he was using the phone. He suspects this gang is, is a group of smugglers and that they are behind the strange occurrences. Jimmy starts to say more when Clark hears a speedboat quickly approaching. Thinking it's the smugglers, Clark tells Jimmy to put out the light and they watch the boats as it soon turns off and disappears. Jimmy then continues his story, saying that the night before last, he heard his aunt's dog, Tiger, barking. He and his aunt were in the kitchen, and they thought they heard a noise down in the cellar, a loud thump followed by a dragging noise. But when they went down to check it out, the cellar was empty, and the dogs quieted down soon afterwards and never made another sound. Even more suspicious, Clark and Jimmy start to hurry back towards Jimmy's aunt's house, when suddenly the lighthouse begins to blink and they lose track of where they are. Jimmy heads up to the bow of the ship to check things out, as Clark thinks, if only he could change to Superman. But his thoughts are soon interrupted by Jimmy's screams, telling him to turn the boat. Clark isn't fast enough, though, and the boat crashes into some rocks, throwing Jimmy overboard. Clark cries out, but gets no response, so he leaps into the sky as Superman, for a better view, finally spotting Jimmy tangled in seaweed and ten feet underwater. Diving down, he tears loose the seaweed and leaps back out of the water, flying Jimmy to shore. Jimmy soon revives and realizes that they've come ashore on Lighthouse Point. He then says they must have gotten turned around and that the lighthouse they saw was actually the one at Lighthouse Point. But he thinks it's weird that the lighthouse was blinking because the lighthouse hasn't worked for 50 years. Hearing someone running up the beach, Jimmy and Clark then give chase, finally recognizing the figure as a woman. As they approach, the woman falls and Jimmy realizes that the figure is his Aunt Louisa leaving Clark and Jimmy with yet another mystery to ponder. When our next episode begins, Jimmy and Clark have carried Aunt Louisa back to the house and are attempting to revive her. After some dialogue recapping the strange occurrences of last episode, Jimmy also repeats how Louisa's grandfather built the lighthouse so he could dock his clipper ship. Clark is surprised a ship the size of a clipper could dock there, but Jimmy explains that Lighthouse Point makes a bay that leads into Lighthouse Creek and promises to show Clark around tomorrow. About that time, Louisa comes to and starts calling out for someone named Christopher. Jimmy thinks she means a nephew that Louisa had raised from a young age before he mysteriously ran off. As Louisa fully revives, Jimmy explains what happened and wants to know what she was doing out on the beach in the rain. Louisa seems confused, but said she wanted to see if there was anything she could do to help them as they came in on the boat. Jimmy starts to ask about the light in the lighthouse, but is cut off when Clark accidentally steps on his ankle. 
Tired, Louisa starts to head upstairs to get some rest, when they again hear the thumping and dragging noise in the cellar. Despite Louisa's warnings not to go, Clark and Jimmy head down to the cellar to check things out. On the way, Clark apologizes for stepping on Jimmy's ankle, but says he had to hush him up because he thinks Louisa knows more than she's telling. When they get down to the cellar, the door is locked, so Clark breaks through and they charge down, only to find the cellar completely empty. Looking around and seeing that nothing bigger than a cat could have gotten out of the cellar, Clark tells Jimmy to go get a hammer. While he's upstairs, Clark changes to Superman and tries to tear up some of the bricks in the floor, but has no luck. He then hears Jimmy calling out, so he changes back to Clark and runs upstairs. Louisa explains that while he and Jimmy were downstairs, she saw a light in the lighthouse. Jimmy loads an old shotgun for Louisa to use if anything comes up, and he and Clark head out to investigate at the lighthouse. Clark warns her to stay out of the cellar, and Jimmy says to fire the gun if there's trouble. Once out of the house, Clark says he thinks it's suspicious that only Louisa saw the light in the lighthouse. They then stop a short distance from the house, and Clark says they're going to stay right where they are, and watch the house, and see what Louisa is up to. Jimmy doesn't believe that Louisa has anything to do with the smuggling, but Clark says he's not quite so sure. She may not be a smuggler, Clark tells him, but he strongly suspects that she's not saying all she knows. After some recappy recap of the last two episodes, Jimmy sees a light blinking again in the lighthouse. They break out in a run towards the tower, and while they're running, Clark thinks he hears a boat through the fog. When they get to the lighthouse, they find a door is open and go inside for a look around. Clark reminds Jimmy how, when they were coming to Lighthouse Point, they heard a boat and then, and then the light in the lighthouse started blinking. He thinks the smugglers are using the lighthouse to guide their boat into the bay for their smuggling operations. After they make their way up the lighthouse and finally get to the light room, they begin hearing noises inside and Clark prepares to break through the door. He tells Jimmy to go back downstairs and wait for him, and once out of sight, Clark changes to Superman and smashes through the door. The man in the room tries shooting at Superman, to no avail. Superman then grabs the guy and, after putting out the light, tries a little Superman-style convincing to make him talk. But the man refuses and gets away from Superman's grip, leaping through the window and into the water below. Superman follows as the guy tries to swim through the water. Unfortunately, the guy landed on a rock and is sinking fast. As the boat tries to make their way to pick him up, Superman swoops in and grabs him. He plans on taking care of the men on the boat, but suddenly hears Jimmy ringing the fog bell from the lighthouse and heads back to see what the trouble is. Once he returns, Clark tells him what happened, leaving out Superman's involvement, of course, and then Jimmy explains that the telephone connecting Louise's house and the lighthouse had rang. Jimmy answered it, but there wasn't anyone on the other end. As Jimmy is explaining how the phone works, it rings again. Clark answers it, but seemingly gets no answers, even though he knows that there's someone on the other end of the line. Clark says that maybe Louisa is calling, but can't talk for some reason, and tells her that if she needs help, but can't talk, to ring the bell three times. Clark then hangs up and waits, and moments later, three ominous rings sound out from the phone. Jimmy and Clark run back toward the house, carrying the man they found in the lighthouse along with them. And as they get near the house, they see all the lights are out. Once they enter the kitchen, they turn on a light and see the cellar door is open and hear Tiger whimpering in the closet. Clark tells Jimmy to let the dog out to guard the man while they look for Louisa. But when he opens the door, Tiger goes after the man and begins licking his face as if he knows him. Jimmy pulls Tiger off and he and Clark wonder just who this guy is. Clark tells Jimmy to go upstairs and look for Louisa while he goes downstairs to investigate the cellar. Jimmy is at first reluctant, but after telling the dog to stay, he goes anyway. Once Jimmy is gone, Clark goes down and hears Louisa calling out. He realizes her voice is coming from an opening in the cellar wall, but it closes before he can get to it. Changing to Superman, he smashes through the concrete and then calls out for Louisa. Having heard all the noise, Jimmy comes a-running. So Superman quickly changes back to Clark, and the two head down the passage following Louise's voice. Finally, they catch up to her at the passageway's end, which is right under the boat dock. Louisa explains that right after Clark and Jimmy left, she again heard the noise in the cellar. After locking Tiger in the closet, she went down to check things out and caught the smugglers dragging a box down the passageway towards the dock. 
Clark tells Jimmy to take Louisa back to the house when they hear Tiger barking once more. Jimmy runs up on ahead while Clark helps Louisa along, explaining about the man that they found in the lighthouse. Jimmy pulls Tiger off another man, who Louisa says is Jasper Quimby, before heading into the next room to check on the man that Jimmy and Clark had found. Quimby tells Clark that he came by to talk to Louisa about the mortgage and found the man lying on the floor. He rushed in to help and carried the man to the couch, and the dog came after him. Jimmy thinks it's odd because Tiger has never attacked anyone before, but Quimby throws a fit, saying he only wanted to talk to Louisa. Clark tries to calm him down, but Quimby continues his tirade, finally saying he'll leave. Jimmy tries to open the door, but finds it's locked. After Jimmy finally gets the door open, and a few more choice words from Quimby, Quimby finally leaves. Jimmy says the guy seemed awfully upset, but Clark thinks he was just relieved to be getting off so easily. He doesn't buy Quimby's story and thinks that he was in the house all along, possibly hidden in another secret passageway. He tells Jimmy not to say anything just yet, and they go to check on Louisa. When they get into the next room, Louisa is upset and confesses that, just as Clark suspected, she hadn't told them everything. She said she knew when Tiger calmed down so easily the previous night that she knew there was more to it, and tells them that the man they found in the lighthouse is her own flesh and blood, her nephew, Christopher Horn. As our next episode opens, wait for it, some time has passed. Apparently, having had no luck reviving Christopher, Louisa, Clark, and Jimmy just went to bed. And now it's the next morning, and they're having breakfast. Probably pancakes. Aunt Louisa seems like the type of woman to make a big old stack of pancakes for a growing boy like Jimmy. Anyway, after filling up on donuts, Clark compliments Louisa on her dishes, and she says they are special dishes only used for company. She tells how her grandfather, Joshua Horn, brought them back from China many years ago along with a trunk full of Chinese jade. Clark inquires about the jade, and Louisa says it was supposed to be the family fortune, but that she's never seen it because 65 years ago it simply vanished one night. No one knew what happened to it, and her grandfather was missing as well, and then a few days later his dead body was found on the beach. She tells how her grandfather was a ship captain, and how on every trip he would bring something back. Dishes, wallpaper, pictures. Jimmy expresses surprise about wallpaper, and Louisa explains that he had the wallpaper in that very room made special in Shanghai. Louisa then notices a picture missing from the wall, but before she can do much about it, Christopher walks into the room. Christopher's groggy and weak, but asking about Quimby. He tells how when Quimby came by the night before, he had tried to strangle him, and if it hadn't been for Tiger, he would have succeeded. Clark then asks why Quimby would try such a thing, and Christopher says it's because Quimby knows that Christopher found out the Chinese jade still exists, and that it's still in Horn House. Christopher and Quimby both learned of the jade from the logbooks that Joshua Horn used on his voyages. Christopher had been looking in the books, trying to find the location, but discovered that Quimby had torn out those pages. He says he doesn't know where the jade is, but knows that the place can only be accessed a couple times a year, and thinks it might have something to do with the tides. Chris had joined up with Quimby only to discover what he knew and stop him from stealing the jade. Clark realizes the picture on the wall must hold the key to the jade's location. Louisa says she thinks the picture, which matched the wallpaper, was of a place called the Golden Gardens, and after learning where Quimby lives, Clark heads out to see what he can do. Jimmy sees the wallpaper behind where the picture was hanging isn't faded, and that the pattern on the wallpaper, when turned upside down, is a map of Lighthouse Point and Horn House, including, seemingly, all of the secret passages. He then sees writing on the outside that reads, Take twice three turns, and two turns more. The water waits behind the door. Turn seven stones, make haste or then the sea too soon comes in again, which leads both to wonder what it means and Jimmy even more determined to find the treasure. Our final episode opens with Jimmy and Louisa venturing through the winding secret passageways beneath Horn House. Unbeknownst to them, however, up ahead, Quimby and his assistant Pete have already reached the secret door and are trying to break in. Quimby explains how Joshua Horn hid the jade in a watertight chamber, 
that could only be accessed a couple times a year when the tides ebb low and come in high. Whoever accesses the chamber only has a limited time to do so, or they'll be locked in the chamber as the door closes automatically. Quimby speculates Horn died because he took too long and got stuck by his own trap. Quimby then pulls out some stones, causing the water to pour into the passageway. Knowing that means the chamber is still full of water, they head back to the dock to make sure his accomplices are getting the boat ready. Shortly later, Jimmy and Louisa arrive at the door, and Jimmy reminds us about the writing on the wallpaper. Louisa thinks he's crazy, but Jimmy says they made eight turns in the passageway, and he's sure they're in the right place. He then counts up 14 stones, and finds it pulls out, causing the door to open, revealing the secret chamber. Inside, they see Joshua's sea chest, and open it to find it's full of packages. Louisa opens one of the packages to find a piece of jade, and realizes that at long last, they've found Joshua Horn's lost treasure. As they celebrate, the door suddenly closes, and the chamber begins to fill with water. Jimmy tries to open the door again, but has no luck. Meanwhile, having come up empty at Quimby's house, Clark returns to Lighthouse Point, but is surprised that Jimmy and Louisa are nowhere to be found. He starts to head upstairs, but is pounced by Tiger. Clark figures from Tiger's actions that something must have happened to Jimmy and Louisa, and tells Tiger to lead him to them. At the same time, Quimby and Pete rush towards the chamber, hoping to get there before the tide comes in again. They arrive to hear Jimmy and Louisa screaming for help, and knowing they're stuck inside, but not wanting any part in their deaths, they start to run, just as Tiger and Clark come down the passageway. Hearing Jimmy and Louisa inside, Clark channels his inner Superman and tears through the wall to the chamber, saving Louisa and Jimmy. As the water continues to pour in, Clark tells Louisa and Jimmy to run back up the passageway. He then grabs the chest and makes a run for it himself. Later, back at the house, Louisa thanks Clark for rescuing them and the treasure. And soon, Clark and Jimmy head off to find a telegraph office so they can follow the story with the Daily Planet. The Very Abrupt End said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com cast this time out is our usual suspects of Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, Julian Noah as Perry White, and Jackie Kelk as Jimmy Olsen. Unfortunately, I don't know who played Aunt Louisa, Pete Quimby, Christopher, or, excuse me, Jasper Quimby, Christopher, or Pete, however. Uh, Pete only had, like, two lines in the one episode he appeared in, so it might have just been some random guy off the street, for all I know. I, I don't really know. To get into the notes, episode 70, this is the first appearance, or even mention, of Jimmy Olsen since episode 39, which was the final episode of Airplane Disasters at Bridger Field, the second storyline featuring Jimmy. It's interesting that, once again, Jimmy plays a significant part in the story, and Lois Lane is absolutely nowhere to be found. Of the 18 episodes that Jimmy has appeared in so far, Lois has only been in two of those. Technically, she was a factor in more, but the actors portraying the characters have only been in two of the same episodes. Charlie said, I think it was back when we were looking at the Bridger Field arc, that 
he felt they were kind of using Jimmy in the same role as Lois. And I tend to agree with him as far as having someone to place in peril. And it's really telling that they've hardly appeared together at all. I do like that they brought him back, though. They even went so far as to reference that he helped his mom at the candy store and worked some at the Daily Planet in addition to going to school. It was a really nice callback to his introduction, since his mom in the candy store played such a big part in that. And given that he's only 14, it's really no surprise that he got overworked and needed some time off. And while I know it was only that way to serve the plot, I also like that Perry recognized it, so that he could have that time off. You know, it it, it speaks a lot to, towards Perry's character that he, he notices things like that in his employees and the people that are surrounding him. And it also helped answer why we haven't seen Jimmy for, what, 30 episodes? Yeah, 30 episodes, um, which was an added benefit. And I liked that Jimmy wrote to Perry saying that he should send a reporter up, but specifically asked for Clark. Again, yes, it was more to serve the plot, but at the same time, I liked the idea that, you know, Jimmy saw how Clark helped out with uh, in taking care of Donnelly and the problem at Bridger Field, perhaps other things along the way that we just aren't privy to yet, and thought he would be a good fit here. Also, while Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen will eventually become a staple, I like the idea that's been played up really more in the last couple decades that Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen are friends too. Or in this setup where Jimmy is still a boy, that Clark is someone that Jimmy looks up to like a big brother. It's a small thing, but much like, or even more so than what I talked about just a second ago with Perry, it does a lot for Clark Kent's character, I think. There is one oddity in this episode that I didn't quite get. When Perry is talking about New England and trying to convince Clark to go up, he makes a comment about dude ranches. No, thanks, Chief. I'm due for a vacation. Well, why not New England? Lobsters, clam chowder, sailing, dude ranches, huh? Uh, no, no. Uh, dude ranches are out west, aren't they? Uh, joking aside, Mr. White, what did Jimmy say? Uh, he's knee-deep in mystery. With all I'm thinking time. that is a line that's meant to be a joke, but it didn't quite come off right in the delivery. A little later in the conversation, Clark makes another mention of it, and that played a little better in the humor department, but doesn't make sense at all if Perry's line was supposed to be straight. But anyway, that's a that's really a minor issue. Speaking of flubbing lines, though... Jackie Kelk messes up one of his lines when he's telling Clark about the smugglers coming into the store. I was going to tell you why I left the phone so quick. I had to because I seen them coming right into the store where I was phoning from. Then who? The guys. Same fellas I wrote Mr. Kent about. It's a gang, Mr. Kent. They're after something in Lighthouse Point, and I'm... Clearly that should have been the same fellas I wrote Mr. White about. Uh, Moving on to episode 71. I was impressed... Well, I don't know if impressed is quite the right word, but I thought it was well played how they introduced Christopher here. Louisa utters his name as she's coming to, and Jimmy quickly explains to Clark who he is, and then they move on. When listening to it, I didn't think much of it because it was that well done. So even though I probably should have seen it coming, knowing the writing in these things, it it caught me a little bit off guard when they revealed Christopher at the very end of episode 73. And there were really several subtle things in this set of episodes that show a step up in the storytelling with this arc. I, I can't mention them all without being just really, really tedious, but I hope that it, it's something that continues. And if you're actually listening to the, uh, the episodes beyond my synopsis of them, um, you'll, you'll probably catch up or pick up on some of those things as you listen. Uh, this episode had a great voice transition from Collier about two-thirds of the way into the episode. Now then, I had to have some excuse to get him out of the way. Something mighty queer about all this. And I have an idea that finding out what it is is a job for Superman. And it's kind of funny because right before that line, he had sent Jimmy up to get to get the hammer. And he starts trying to tear the bricks up in the cellar, which he's unsuccessful at, by the way which is odd, given that we've seen him smash through steel and concrete. But shortly after that, he hears Jimmy hollering for Clark, and he specifically says, I can't let Jimmy see me like this. Now, back to Clark Kent. And the whole scene takes less than a minute. 
yeah, Jimmy came back sooner than he expected, but he knew Jimmy was coming right back. And I know why, for purposes of the show, he's changing, but in terms of the story, it's kind of silly and doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, when Jimmy and Clark are getting ready to go to the lighthouse, there was a scene that I really liked. Yes, it can't be, but I'm sure I wasn't seeing things. There was a light in the abandoned lighthouse where there ain't been a sign of a light for 50 years. Mr. Kent, what's going on? What is it? That's what we're here to find out, Aunt Lou. Jimmy, have you still got that flashlight? Right here. What are you going to do? Where are you going? We're going out to the lighthouse on the point, right now. I'm with you, Mr. Kent. Now, Miss Horn, you stay right here. Oh, wait. Have you got a gun or a pistol or anything like that? A gun? Yes. Oh, my soul. Don't you give me no gun. I wouldn't best to use it. Well, you can use it just to make a noise if anything happens while we're gone. Aunt Lou, there's that old shotgun in the closet. And there's shells, too. I'll load it up for you. Jimmy Olsen, don't you touch that gun. You leave it be. There you are. Put it right here on the table. All right, Jimmy. Now, where's the flashlight? Okay, now, come on. Now, wait. Come on. Miss Horn, that, that cellar door at the top of the stairs. We had to break the one at the bottom. Does this one lock? It's got a bolt. My lands, what in the world are you... There, that'll do it. There we are. All right now, Miss Horn. We won't be long, but whatever happens, keep that door bolted. And stay out of the cellar till we get back. And if you want help, Aunt Lou, fire that gun. All right, Mr. Kent. It's still raining, Tom. Go ahead, Jimmy. Be careful now, Miss Horn. Stay right where you are. Mr. Kent, you and Jimmy, be careful. You look out. I still think it's weird having Superman encourage people to use guns. Um, not only with my modern sensibilities about the character, but even in the context of the time, because the comic book version, and the newspaper, of course, hasn't done anything like that, and in fact has been very anti-gun. But Louisa's reaction felt very natural. You know, having had elderly relatives similar to Louisa, that's exactly the way I would expect them to react in a situation like this. And I also appreciated Jimmy's portrayal, you know, loading the gun and and handing it to her, but not in a cocky or domineering way. Jimmy's a 14-year-old kid, but they really portrayed him in this arc as willing to man up and protect his aunt, who had absolutely no one else. And I really, really dug that. Um, My next note for this episode, it actually starts with this episode, but it's more in response to what was said in the next episode. So we'll go ahead and move on to episode 72. Clark seems to come up with the idea that Louisa wasn't telling everything she knows way too quickly. Now, I can understand him having suspicions, but there was absolutely no indication that Louisa was mixed up in anything, you know, anything more than Jimmy was. And again, maybe that's another problem with the delivery. Maybe Louisa was supposed to be shiftier in her reading of the lines, but I, I just really don't think so. But that's really the only note I had about this episode. Um, A lot of it was uh, descriptive exposition that they do on the radio show to describe the surroundings and and the goings-on since we can't actually see what's happening. While a necessary evil, so to speak, it, it doesn't really lead to much as far as notes go. This episode did, however, have our most significant Superman moment of the entire set of episodes as he manhandles Christopher and then, you know, leaps after, or leaps out of the, the uh, about said White House, leaps out of the lighthouse to save him when he jumps into the water. There, there really wasn't much Superman at all in this storyline. And what Superman we did get felt more squeezed in just to get Superman there. Like the, uh, the wreck of the boat back in episode 70, which was completely inconsequential to the, uh, the overall story, but they had to have something for Superman in there, so, oh, let's just have him wreck the boat on their way, you know. Um, but at, at the same time, that's, that's kind of good because it's a story that very much centered on Clark and Jimmy, which from time to time is absolutely fine and, and even welcomed. Episode 73, my only comment about this episode is, much like Clark's assumption about Louisa, he jumps to the idea that Quimby is hiding something so fast that it almost gives you whiplash. Yes, he, he, he left rather quickly, but they weren't exactly being the most welcoming of hosts, and there was clearly a lot going on. So, had he stayed and pushed the issue, then Clark would have still jumped to the conclusion that, aha, he's evil. So really, Quimby was in trouble either way. Uh, he also has the idea that there are more secret passages in the house. 
Why? I mean, he's seen exactly one secret passageway so far in the cellar. So why would that mean that there are more? As much as I like this set of episodes, Clark does a lot of leaping tall conclusions at a single bound, which, which, which really is probably the weakest part. Um, I'm kind of tied on whether that is or something else that I'll get to in, in just a minute, but I don't know. It, it's, it's the one thing that really, really stuck out at me that I think they should have worked on a little bit. Episode 74. <laughs> it's funny how this episode picks up the next morning. So apparently they had all this commotion, Quimby's visit, and the startling revelation that, that the man they found in the lighthouse with a gun is in fact Luisa's long-lost nephew, Christopher, and then they just go to bed, leaving all the exposition and discussion and explanations until the next morning over a nice breakfast. If I were Clark, I'd be like, oh no, you're telling me right now just what in the heck is going on here. Uh, but I don't even know but what. I mean, I, I they, they could have very easily explained what was going on then and then just continued on with the episode. It, I don't know, it just makes no sense. But during Louisa's long explanation about Joshua Horn's treasure and whatnot, she expresses surprise that Jimmy doesn't seem to know what she's talking about. And then she says, didn't your mother ever tell you? Oh, well, I guess not. It's not her side of the family. And that's weird because Louisa would almost have to be his mother's sister. She specifically says that Joshua Horn is Jimmy's great-grandfather and her grandfather. For her and her grandfather to have the same surname, that means she probably never got married or, for some reason, kept her maiden name, which... I don't think was really done all too often back in the 40s. Either way, since her last name isn't Olson, that means that she, and by extension Joshua, have to be a relation of Jimmy's mother. The only other option is that by some weird coincidence, she just happened to marry someone who also had the last name of Horn. But that also seems like pretty long odds too. And making matters even more complicated, is that they say that Christopher Horn is Luisa's nephew, but never say that he's Jimmy's cousin. Which, well, I guess he wouldn't have to be, but depending on Luisa's marital situation, especially if she never married, he would have to be. The most likely scenario I can think to for, for everything to work is to say that Joshua Horn, Jimmy's great-grandfather on his father's side, had a daughter. That daughter whose name we don't know, grew and married a man named Olson and had two children, Henry, Jimmy's dad, and Louisa. Henry then married Jimmy's mom, and they had Jimmy, and Henry died sometime thereafter. Meanwhile, Louisa Olson marries someone with the last name of Horn, unrelated to her grandfather, and that Mr. Horn dies soon after as well. Assuming Mr. Horn had a brother or sister who never took a married name, this would allow Christopher to be Mr. Horn's biological nephew, making him Louise's nephew by marriage, but not Jimmy's cousin. And I am my own grandpa. But that would work. It's confusing as all get out, but it would work. I never expected to be <laughs> diagramming family trees when I started this show, but that's the most likely scenario that I've come up with, so that's what I'm going with. Uh, not that it matters, since we're unlikely to ever hear from the horns again, but I like the minutia. Thankfully, Lois's family relations have been much, much easier to determine thus far. She has an uncle, and he's kind of crazy. That's it. Uh, but when they realize... <laughs> when they realize the picture is missing from the wall, Louisa blames Jimmy for breaking it. Why, my land! Aunt Lou, what's the matter? My soul and body, look there, right on the wall behind you, Mr. Kent. For what? The picture. Where? It's, it's gone. Why, that's so. Golly, I never noticed. Jimmy, did you break that picture and say nothing about it? Me? Gosh, Aunt Lou, what do you take me for, a kid? Uh, I wouldn't put it past you. Again, it has nothing to do with the story, but it made me laugh. When I was a kid, every summer my family would go to Virginia to visit my great-aunt and uncle. They were elderly and never had any kids of their own, so we'd go and spend a week with them to visit and, and help out with what we could around the house. 
And I see a lot of similarities in Louisa and my great aunt. Part of it's the generation, but it also, I think, speaks a lot to the believability of the character in a show that is oftentimes filled with unbelievable situations. Verisimilitude, to borrow a term from a future Superman incarnation. And it's those little things, you know, the little bits of character and the, the believable characters that we're getting that I'm really, really liking about the radio show because comics and newspapers to this point just haven't had that. And not necessarily just with the Superman strip. I mean, it's... it's If you read other uh, comics from the time, it's, it's the same with those too. So that's not necessarily a fault of Siegel. It's one of those things that kind of helps to contrast the differences between what's going on in the printed mediums and what's going on here. Now, the last note I had about this episode, it's odd, but the actor playing Christopher in this episode doesn't sound like the same actor that played him in episode 72. I'm wondering if it was, in fact, two different actors, because it would have been two different weeks, or if it was just the way he was acting, because in the earlier episode he was, you know, screaming and very excited, but here he's speaking slower and more drained since he'd just woken up from the ordeal the night before. Episode 75, then we get to this, this is this episode, which is our final episode. And it feels like the writers forgot that this was the final episode until they were about a third or halfway into writing it. With one exception, it's not a bad ending. It just needed to be spread over two episodes. You know, this episode could have ended with Louisa and Jimmy trapped in the the chamber. And then the final episode could have had Superman winding through the passages and finally saving them at the last minute. And then going after Quimby and Pete and bringing them to justice. As it is, Quimby and Pete got away, and nothing more is said of them. I mean, granted, maybe Clark didn't have quote-unquote proof of any wrongdoings, but that's never been an obstacle in previous stories, either here or in the comics. Uh, Another problem with letting them go is that they're still at large, probably plotting to steal the Jade in a sequel story that we'll never get. So it's... It just really feels like the writers just forgot. You know, they got halfway through the episode. Oh, man, we got to wrap this up. Okay, well, Pete and Quimby run away, and then that's it, you know. Um, Another problem is because it was all smashed into one episode, somehow Clark is able to smash through the wall while Louisa and Jimmy are both fully conscious, and no one questions it. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe he didn't smash through the wall. Maybe he moved the brick that allowed the door to open which I guess makes more sense as far as the story goes, but it doesn't explain how Clark knew where the brick was or or that there was even a brick to open the door. I mean, since Jimmy didn't find the message until after Clark left. And really the further problem with that is is that it makes Superman almost completely ineffectual in the story's resolution. I mean, it could have been just as easily been Perry White who got there in the nick of time, you know, if he's not doing anything super... So I guess there's really no uh, good solution to that. And the bit with Tiger doing his best lassie to tell Clark where Jimmy and Louisa was, that was really, really silly. Jimmy! Jimmy Olsen! Jimmy, where are you? Miss Horn! Huh. That's queer. I wonder what's happened. Maybe they're upstairs with Chris. Oh, Jimmy! Oh, hello, Tiger. Good dog. All right, Tiger. Now, keep out of my way, Tiger. Run along, find a bone. That's a good dog. Run along, will you? Looking for Jimmy and Miss Horn. Wait a minute, Tiger. What, what's the matter with you? Wait, now. What do you want? Let go of my coat, Tiger. Tiger, drop that. Take your feet off me. They're all muddy. What? Now, wait. What, what is it, Tiger? What do you want, boy? Is Jimmy down in the cellar? Is that what you want? You want me to follow you? Great heavens. They're in trouble. That's what the dog wants. They're down in the galleries. Something's happened. Tiger. Good dog now. Good dog. All right, now go on. Go on. Go find Jimmy. Find Miss Horn. That's a good dog. I'm right with you, Tiger. Go on. Go on. And what's interesting is Lassie was first published as a novel in 1940. Uh, so it probably, I don't know if it was in the beginning of the year or the later in the year, 
but it would have probably been out around this time. And I have never read the novel, so I can't tell you if that uh, the bit about you know Lassie telling people that Timmy is stuck in the well is something that comes from the novel, or if that has just become a cliche from the movies and the radio program or the TV. But either way, it's it's really really silly. I mean, I guess I can let it slide in 1940, but it's just really really silly, and I could have done. I could have done well without that part. You know, just have Superman use his x-ray vision and, and see down the tunnel, and that that solves the problem. But, oh well. Um, all in all, with exception of the end, I, I did really like this one, even though I just spent, you know, 15 minutes talking about all the things I hated about it. Um, but there were lots of mysteries, you know, being built more and more with each episode, and we got to follow along with Clark as he discovered them. That's something that's really a lot of fun, especially in an audio medium where you can't see what's going on. This was a lot... This story was a lot more dense than most. There weren't a lot of lengthy recaps or unnecessary hijinks. Almost everything worked together to build the overall mystery, maybe even to a fault, since they had to rush the end. And really, the rushed ending is probably my biggest problem with this. I mean, I, I did have a problem with Clark leaping to conclusions, but part of that is just the writing and the times in which these were produced. But This set of episodes reminded me a lot of an episode of Adventures of Superman. Not just because the story was reused there, but because of the heavy use of Jimmy. I really like that they're taking the opportunity to, to use more of the supporting cast, or, or use the supporting cast more, I should say. You know, last storyline was very Lois heavy, and now we have a very Jimmy-centric episode. And I look forward to more of that down the road, and I really look forward to when we start getting more of Perry White as well. Because for the most part, so far, Perry has just been confined to the office at the beginning of the story, you know, telling Clark to go cover a story. Um, I didn't mention it earlier, but I thought the sound effects were very good on this one. The first episode had Jimmy's catboat rowing through the water and the wind and the storm, and it was just very... They were very subtle, very soft sounds. You know, they weren't the loud, obtrusive uh, noises that become a distraction, but they were just very soft in the background and just a very fine touch with the sound effects that I really, really liked. Unfortunately, they're still not so great with the animal sounds. Tiger is clearly a human emulating a barking sound, and they still haven't mastered how things should sound underwater. Um, this time it sounded like Bud Collier was just talking with his hand over his mouth, like this. But those things are to be expected, and, you know, to be completely open about it, I'm not sure that they'll ever come up with something that works. So we'll just go with it and, and hope that they can find something that works a little better. <laughs> if you want to hear these episodes, unfortunately they've never been released, but they are available like all the episodes at a wide variety of places across the Internet. It was also not adapted into radio and television mirror like many have been. But like Happy Land Amusement Park, this storyline was recycled later on in the series in 1944, where it was simply called Lighthouse Point. Unfortunately, that's a period where few episodes of the radio serial are still known to exist, and the complete storyline is not available as far as I know. But maybe by the time we get there in this show, it will have surfaced. I'm not holding my breath, but you never know. We can always cross our fingers and hope. Sharp-eared listeners may have also noticed some striking familiarities in this storyline, because this plot was also adapted into a first-season episode of George Reeves's Adventures of Superman, where it was called The Haunted Lighthouse. Now, substantial changes were made, obviously, to fit it into a 25-minute television episode, but it is the first of a few radio storylines to get adapted for the show, thanks, no doubt, to Whitney Ellsworth's involvement in both. I didn't go back and uh, re-watch that episode, but it, it is, it's from the first season, so it's definitely worth watching, as all the first season episodes are. And we'll, you know, assuming we get to that point on this show, we'll definitely be covering it then. So just stay tuned, folks. Guy Gardner Podcast. I've got a fast connection.
so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the mystic guardians of the universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. When I was editing in clips from the six episodes that made up the storyline, I caught a line of dialogue that I missed before. The morning of the breakfast, uh, when Louisa is telling Clark and Jimmy about you know Joshua Horn and all that, she says that she never knew Joshua Horn or didn't know him very well, but that her mother had told her a lot about him. Now, that doesn't conclusively prove my theory about the relationship between the characters. I mean, my mom has told me a lot about my paternal grandmother, who I never knew, but it does add a little bit of credibility to it because of her mother and her father, it would make more sense that her mother would be the one telling her about her mother's father. So, there you go. But anyway, thanks everyone for joining me. Next week, we'll be sticking with the radio show for a look at the 14th storyline. It's a shorter arc, only three episodes, but I hope you'll come back. Please remember to stop by greatcrypton.com for show notes and back episodes. If you want to subscribe to the show and ensure you never miss an episode, at the site you will also find links to the RSS feed and the iTunes link. If you use iTunes, any and all iTunes reviews are appreciated, if you have a few minutes to leave one. 
If you are not one of the 16 people who isn't on Facebook or Twitter, feel free to follow the show on both sites to get show-related news and updates. And if you have any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to message me on Facebook or Twitter as well. Or you can drop me a line to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and I will read it on a future episode unless you specify otherwise. Don't forget about the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Updates about new episodes are posted on both sites. And finally, I invite you to check out my other podcasts, Legends of the Batman at batmanlegends.com, which I co-host with Michael Kaiser, as well as Green Lantern's Light at greenlanternslight.com, which I co-host with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in his copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, folks. And I will talk to you later. Goodbye. I am 